This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, um, we are discussing the paper, Exploring the Utility of Memes for U.S. Government Influence Campaigns, um, by Megan McBride and Kate Hammerberg. Um, we wanted to do this show for <laughs> obvious reasons because it's it's kind of unique in the environment of inf- um, information operations papers in that it explicitly puts at the center of the paper the idea of a meme and especially visual memes as we'll sort of get into the show. Um, before we start, just a reminder, uh, Loopcast, we are on Patreon and we... Um, you know, you can listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. So just, um, if you don't want to listen to us on iTunes, just go over to Spotify and and give us a a listen. So, um, with that, let's start the show. I want to maybe start off with a really basic question. And that question is what, um, what is a meme? Because, um, when I, when I think of memes, I, I think of basically, cats, you know, funny cat videos or, um, you know, just really just silly stuff that I would run into on Twitter. But uh, for the sake of the paper and for to give us a, a better definition, um, what is a meme? I'm not sure we can offer a better definition. It's a it's a pretty widely defined term, I think. Um, but if if we were to define meme, you'd have to start in 1976 with Richard Dawkins. So he first defined, um, he coined the term meme as, as sort of a uh, sort of spin-off of gene as a way to discuss how ideas are spread as opposed to how genetic information was spread. And then he talked about ideas being spread via similar processes. So you would have um, the same kind of process you see for the sharing of uh, DNA information. So replication, variation, and natural selection. So we thought that this was how ideas would spread. They would sort of go out into the world, they would mutate, they would replicate, and they would sort of, the good ones would succeed and the bad ones would kind of sort of uh, fade off. But that's certainly not what people are talking about today, right? So I, like you, I'm thinking of Grumpy Cat when I think of a meme, or Success Kid, or The World's Most Interesting Man, any sort of, any of those variations. Um, And so when we defined meme, we took a decidedly more modern definition. Um, for our paper, and we were thinking of exactly what you're thinking about. Um, we deci- we defined it a little bit more broadly than that to include sort of any information shared online, and we really focused on the visual, but we definitely had in mind um, basically Tumblr, Twitter, Reddit, all the sites that are sort of full of, of images like that. Interesting. So maybe if um, to sort of expand on the definition, um, how does a visual meme differ from other memes in the sense of I, I think it, if you're sort of repeating an idea it's you know that's it's common in literature but I think you know the online mediums sort of give rise to this visual meme so how do we when we discuss a visual meme versus other memes what is different about a visual meme yeah so I think there's a couple advantages that visual sort of memes and or things in general bring to the table that text doesn't. 
Um, first and foremost, we looked at sort of the neurocognitive literature, the science of how our brains work. And what we learned from that is our brains are primarily uh, uh, image processing centers rather than text processors. So just the way that we're hardwired is to process images rather than text. So that alone gives the visual an advantage over text. Um, and then on top of that, visuals, right, you look at a picture, an advertising, a piece of marketing, a picture says a thousand words. So visual images, and in this case visual memes, sort of play on a couple things called heuristics, which are our brain's sort of cognitive shortcuts to retrieve information. Um, so visuals, right, they're, they're brief, they're sticky, they're emotionally evocative, um, and for all of those reasons we thought that they made sort of a more interesting case for why they might be effective via text. Interesting. It's it's also the case, I would add, that there were we came across a lot of sort of ways to categorize meme. So some of the early definitions, those sort of derivatives of the Dawkins work, talked about lots of different kinds of memes. So you might think of a slogan for uh, sort of a brand that you're familiar with or a jingle. You could think of a hashtag campaign as a meme. You could think of bits and pieces of fairy tales, like sort of really familiar things. Um, depending on how you define it, all of these things can kind of fit into the category of meme. So when, even when we looked in sort of the online space, we weren't limited to sort of visual in theory. We could have, we could have as one example, included a hashtag campaign. So the, like the Me Too campaign, which is um, really sort of simple. The hashtag is, is clear. Anybody can use it. That kind of a thing could sort of fall into that category. Um, but for the reasons that Kate sort of outlined, we went with the visual memes because they send, tend to pack a, a little bit more of a cognitive punch. Interesting. So then I want to maybe um, take a sidestep and, and how do we relate memes and mimetic engagement to influence operations? Because it, it's, you know, it, it's one thing to say that, oh, you know, look what I put on Twitter, and it's another thing to say, oh, I, I'm using these collection of memes to actually to a strategic and operational point. Yeah, so, yeah, so I think the idea – oh, go ahead, Kate. Um, so, the, so to that question, two sort of broad lines of effort come to mind. The first is um, the fact that we, we think, we suspect that they can be effective via all those sort of neurocognitive reasons that we outlined. Um, but w situating them inside of a more strategic or tactical operation, I mean, the first obvious answer is, right, we've seen it done. I mean, we don't have to, no one has to be um, sort of a national security analyst to have observed the conversation about how Russia has tinkered in uh, both the American elections and other elections around the world using um, sort of cheap, cheap humor and uh, memes really fall into that category. And then the other kind of, I think addresses the question of intentionality, and this is something that certainly came up in our research, is the idea of defining your outcome variables. So in this, Meg, I'm sure you'll talk about how this kind of opens up a whole another can of worms, but defining exactly the audience that you want to reach and how you want to reach them and disaggregating whether you want to change an attitude or a behavior are really, really important. So when we're talking strategy and tactics and information operations, what we're trying to get the policy community and sort of the operational community to think about is, you know, really sitting down and outlining who is the population you want to sort of reach out to, how do you want to reach out to them, and what exactly is it you're trying to achieve? I would add, too, that this idea of using memes has been around for a, for a long time. We sort of, there's been, there's a lot of sort of like 
percolating knowledge um, about uh, mimetic engagement. There was a there have been a couple of sort of popular articles. I think Motherboard published one about mimetic engagement. So the, the idea sort of of using memes in a more strategic and tactical way, I think, really took shape in the wake of ISIS, which had such a sophisticated online um, sort of recruiting, um, I'm not even sure, oper- we'll just go with operation, right? So they're, they're sort of everywhere and they're engaged they, they themselves are using memes to spread their message. And so I think a, a more robust conversation about memes and sort of how to respond online has taken shape in the wake of their success over the past few years. So then when we, when we get down to analyzing memes and mimetic engagement, which I, I found this, the, you, um, the construct that you propose in the paper really interesting because it's, it's based on the, the model of inoculate, infect, and treat. And I, I'm curious if you can sort of walk us through walk us through this construct used for analyzing memes and mimetic engagement. Sure. So we started by actually looking at all of the instances in which we um, – this was a, a relatively modest project. So we obviously we couldn't go and find every instance in which memes had been used online to sort of respond to political state actors or non-state actors. But the first thing we did, we went out and tried to find as many examples as we could. Um, and in looking at them, it occurred to us pretty quickly that they were really different, that the thing that was being accomplished by the different campaigns um, wasn't exactly the same. Um, and so we decided to use the sort of epidemiological model of infect, inoculate, and treat. Um, and I think Kate can speak to this a little bit more because we thought it captured the range of responses that we were seeing. So in some cases, um, we thought we saw memes being used to sort of um, inoculate against an idea. So um, sort of to protect a population for something that was coming. So in one case, for example, ISIS issued a threat and the sort of images from the video were turned into a joke. So that if ISIS did follow through on the threat, the population was to some degree inoculated. Um, they had sort of already turned ISIS into something of a laughing stock. Um, in the infect cases, what we saw was the use of a meme to spread a new idea. So the, the thing that comes to mind right for that might be the Russia's interference in the US election where they're sort of spreading specific ideas or in Brexit, um, which is another place where we saw Russian interference um, and then the, in the treat sort of case, we're sort of thinking about something a little bit different where some sort of a harm has already been done and the meme is a direct response. So perhaps um, uh, disinformation has been posted. Um, so in, in one particular case, a TV station posted uh, a photoshopped image of a U.S. ambassador and the U.S. embassy responded by photoshopping the ambassador into sort of a series of absurd locations, a hockey game, the moon landing, um, uh, putting the ambassador next to MacArthur in the Philippines in the 1940s. Um, and so that was an effort to treat, right? So we had a something terrible, something uh, disinformation has been spread, and the information was treated with the meme. Um, and that's the model that we sort of settled on. But, but like I said, I think Kate can speak a bit more to why we picked that model specifically. Yeah, sure. So certainly the model grew out of, uh, as Meg mentioned sort of our observations as we started collecting data, if you will, about, you know, all the different types of memes we could find out there. Um, but it also grew out of sort of an interesting uh, hiccup or bias, which we started out with when we undertook the study, which was um, we were really focused initially on the idea of things going viral and on the quantitative metrics as an analog for impact. 
And um, throughout the course of our study, both through the, the literature review, whether we looked at stuff from sort of advertising and marketing, um, and also through some really interesting interviews we conducted with subject matter experts. Um, so while we try to keep their names sort of out of, um, out of our paper, we talked with people in the intelligence community, um, advertising executives, a professional comedian, um, a famous internet troll, which was certainly interesting. All of those people told us that um, quantitative metrics online can be faked, sometimes convincingly, sometimes not, whether that's um, buying followers, using effective com uh, computing to sort of mimic uh, engagement. Those metrics don't really tell a full story, which led us to sort of shift away from the idea of um, sort of the quantitative viral piece um, and to focus more on the concept of persuasion and influence with respect to how do you actually change a person's attitude or behavior, and are those two things related? So in looking at that, we began to dig into, unsurprisingly, the literature on um, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, uh, counter and radicalization. Um, and there's quite a bit of interesting stuff out there that really tries to dig into the question of how do um, extreme ideas spread. So, you know, in today's climate, definitely focused on sort of uh, radical Islam and jihadi terrorists, but um, we suspected that those same mental sort of concepts are, you know, applicable in other worlds. So we dug a little further into the psychology literature and ultimately uh, in the advertising world looked at public health campaigns like Stop Smoking. Um, Meg did some really interesting work on that. And what we, we settled on the epidemiological concept, both because of our observations, because of the literature, um, and also because, honestly, it just really it fit. And we felt that it, um, you know, kind of paid some homage to Richard Dawkins, who coined the term, given that his background was in evolutionary biology, kind of staying in the same vein of thought that he originally developed for the concept of what a meme is. Interesting. So then I want to maybe um, have you guys expand on the idea of, of how do we gauge effectiveness? Because I think... Um, you know, there's there's multiple ways to engage in fact, effectiveness on the internet. You know, either a click-through rate, or you know, attention on on certain things, reuse. But when it comes to mimetic engagement, and specifically mimetic engagement for operations, how do we sort of gauge effectiveness? Like, is it is it just you have to rely on a quantitative method, or a qualitative method, or what is that that process? Yeah, this is a really great question, and it's something we struggled with a little bit. Um, Go ahead, Kate. I, yeah, I think as you said, there's certainly sort of quantitative metrics that are uh, somewhat easy to pull from online sources, but um, that's really, well, in some ways a little bit outside the scope of our study in that, as Meg mentioned, it was a modest study, so it was a a question that we unfortunately didn't get to try and answer, um, but it's certainly one that uh, stakeholders all across the U.S. government and even in the private sector, right, like we, everyone would love to know the answer to that. And I think if Meg and I put our heads together, we could come up with maybe some interesting possibilities, but I don't know that there's really anyone out there who can give you a hard and fast on how you do that. So yeah, I think one of the things we really struggled with with this was that one of the one of the questions you have to ask yourself when, when sort of 
designing the sort of tools you'll use to assess your metrics is what success means. And this is something that Kate and I went back and forth about a lot in sort of working through the paper. So um, there's she mentioned this briefly, but there's a lot of research on the difference between attitudes and behaviors. So we sort of asked ourselves for a while if we were looking to change behaviors or if we were looking to change attitudes. Um, you can sort of take that as like a, an, an end goal of effectiveness. Did we change attitudes or did we change behaviors? But establishing whether or not you've, you've changed attitudes or behaviors is really different, difficult. Um, and even sort of big um, public health campaigns that we looked at um, so, for example, and not, and not just public health, but we looked at sort of um, some literature on get-out-the-vote campaigns, or we looked at literature on um, bike helmet campaigns or uh, smoking cessation campaigns. Um, and to, to assess whether or not those have been successful is borderline, it's incredibly complicated. It's not something you can just sort of like run a quick program and determine um, what's happened. Um, but one of the things that, that we focused on was uh, maybe it's a question of something like traction. So um, whether or not a particular campaign got traction within the community that it was targeted to. So um, some of the campaigns we highlighted in our uh, in our study have lasted for years. There's a hashtag campaign that's, that is still an active hashtag in Japan. Um, and others were really small, and that it was a tweet that only reached a couple hundred people, but it's possible that that Twitter account only had a 1,000 followers, in which case the percentage of sort of contact is actually pretty high. Um, uh, but like it said, this, it's, an, it's an incredibly fascinating question with a lot of thoughts on how you would go about doing it. We just haven't yet had the resources to, to dig into it. Interesting. So then does, does mimetic engagement change with the medium? Because um, I, I would say that... So this is a personal story, but I think it, it sort of highlights what, what I'm sort of trying to get at, which is um, for the longest time, I'm, I was always on Twitter. I'm always on that's that's the main social media thing I use and um, sort of how people engage with memes and distribute memes is completely different on Twitter than on Facebook, which is now that I'm using Facebook more, it's it's just this completely weird and alien way of engaging but um, I've also noticed like like a lot of the examples in the paper are based on Twitter and and even with when we use more national security examples like ISIS, like the Russian campaign, um, etc. Um, even the Russian government itself um, and sort of you know putting out foreign policy um, things, they use Twitter. And so when when we discuss mimetic engagement, when we compare and contrast mediums. How does that all sort of, you know, affect operations? I mean, I think it, there's definitely a demographic component to each of the social media platforms. Um, I'll probably get this wrong, but I have read some stuff suggesting that sort of the average Facebook user tends to be older and fall in um, a different demographic category than the average Twitter user. So with respect, again, going back to like, granularity of the audience and like who exactly you're trying to target, I think there's a case to be made that that certainly platform to platform, how you operationalize a mimetic campaign should be different. Yeah, I think there's probably two parts to that. So on the, on the one hand, I would actually argue that mimetic engagement is 
platform agnostic. You could do it anywhere. Um, so Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it, it really wouldn't make a difference. But I think the second part is exactly what Kate said, what it looks like, right? You would have to, you would have to be really smart about how you did it in each of these locations. Um, so we're not necessarily advocating, you know, our, our paper isn't sort of like a how-to guide. Um, and it, it definitely doesn't get into the individual platforms. But I think Kate's pointed out exactly the right thing. You, you would just have to be really thoughtful about who you wanted to communicate to um, and then do it in the appropriate way for that medium. And I, I think that's part of one of the keys, too, is that um, a meme done poorly won't, just won't get traction. So you have to have someone who understands exactly what you're talking about, right? That, like, how memes circulate on Facebook looks different than how they circulate on Twitter. Um, and you need a Facebook-fluent person to be per posting those Facebook memes and a Twitter-fluent person to be posting the, the Twitter ones. So then I want to maybe discuss something controversial, which is if something is viral, does it make it persuasive and then vice versa? Because I think I think one of the big critiques of the Russian campaign was that they, they basically used advertising technology on Facebook. They used um, Twitter very effectively, but, you know, what they were doing wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily, as the critique goes, wasn't, couldn't be taken as persuasive. Sure, it spread to the ends of the internet, whatever, but, you know, if it's just a meme, goes the, the, the argument. Um, and, and so I want to sort of maybe pick this apart and, and look at, you know, if it's viral, does that make it persuasive? Is it, if it's persuasive, does it necessarily have to be viral? Yeah, so I think I'll say one quick thing and then toss this to Kate because she's a little bit better on, on some of this. But one of the things I think that we would want to flag is that there's a difference between an individual meme and, say, a full memetic campaign. So whether or not the individual memes that Russia posted can sort of be shown to be persuasive, um, that's sort of focusing on the trees and losing the forest, right? And so um, I think there's a, an interesting question sort of to be asked whether or not the individual memes were persuasive and whether or not sort of in aggregate the Russian memes changed or influenced the American conversation. I don't know enough about the sort of uh, Russian-U.S. Uh, election case to sort of answer that question, but it's something that's sort of on our minds as we're thinking about memetic engagement. So both sort of utility of an individual image um, and sort of that image in context um, sort of alongside other efforts. Um, but on the virality persuasion question, I'll, I'll toss to Kate. She's uh, that's uh, definitely um, she'll speak more bet, uh, more clearly about that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, uh, well, I guess for better or worse, the short answer is is no. Virality does not equal persuasion, and it doesn't flow the other way either. That said, with respect to the Russia case, which again, I don't want to um, sort of make any broad sweeping political statements. Um, but if I were to have the sort of time, funding, and uh, energy to dig into that case, I suspect there's a couple of um, pretty elemental sort of psychological techniques that Russia was able to use, which um, may be persuasive. Again, since I don't, I wouldn't sort of coin some expert on that case specifically. I don't want to speculate too much. Um, but a couple of things that, uh, that jump out at me as ways that Russia was able to leverage what they did on social media certainly would be um, using emotion over logic. So um, people are very rarely influenced by the facts of a situation. Um, metaphors and stories are a lot more powerful than statistics and, unfortunately, facts. We've seen that play out time and time again. 
um, they were really sort of adroit at applying the concept of uh, framing, which is using sort of frames as a psychological device to sort of shape conversation. And um, if you do that enough, you can sort of increase message resonance for your message through um, sort of repetition and association with other quote-unquote credible sources. Or conversely, you can decrease message resonance, so say factual messages, if you um, sort of omit important information, divert attention away from what sort of the heart of an issue is, or really just to confuse people. Um, and Russia was really, really sort of, I would, I would say, successful at applying those sort of cognitive distortions to, um, to really just like confuse and, and, and muddle the conversation during the election. So, I mean, to answer your question, are they persuasive because they're viral? No, but taken as a whole, if you step back to 30,000 feet and look at the whole process, I'm inclined to say that, that they did have impact. So then I want to maybe ask sort of a question because throughout the paper, it almost seemed like I had, you know, when, when I was reading the paper, I, in my imagination, I was saying, oh, these are just individuals posting memes or just small groups. But um, your paper does bring up some an interesting sort of question, which is, you know, how do we integrate or use memetic engagement within the United States communications bureaucracy? So... Um, so broadly, how would the State Department use memetic engagement versus DOD, you know, versus, you know, whatever else? Um, so how, how does that work or how, you know, how do we, how should we think about this working at a bureaucratic level? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll offer sort of two thoughts, two, two preliminary thoughts to that. The, the first is that one of the things that, um, almost surprised us as we sort of started to look at this a little bit more closely. We went in with a, a perhaps unsurprising misconception, I think, that what we were really going to look at was sort of counter-terrorism and counter-radicalization efforts. Um, and that was sort of the place that we were sort of uh, focused because a lot of the mimetic engagement conversation was originally framed as a mimetic war conversation. And it was like, how can you wage war against an online, uh, an online presence? And so a, a lot of that was really sort of circled, circling around ISIS. Um, and what we found as we looked at the examples was that there was an incredible variety in sort of um, uh, actors who were using it and efforts that it was being used for. So it was being used to spread disinformation and to counter disinformation. And the memes were being used to sort of advocate for terrorist groups, right? So you have ISIS using memes um, and to sort of undermine terrorist groups. Um, uh, we had we had we had an example of memes being used to sort of uh, uh, push back against government lie a government that was lying. We had an example of memes being used to push back against government censorship. Um, and so what we saw was a much a much wider utility than I thought we than I think we originally envisioned. And that speaks to your question of sort of who for whom for what sort of which parties are memes going to be a useful tool. And I, I think the place that we landed is that memes can be a useful tool and really should be a useful tool for any part of the U.S. government that's communicating, um, in part because memes are a, a visual information, as Kate mentioned, is a, is a major way in which that sort of communication um, occurs. So that's sort of the, the first thought is that it's, it's a lot more people than we envisioned. It works a lot more ways. And then I actually don't remember what my second point was. So I'll just, uh, I'll toss it to Kate and, 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 and let her pick it up. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, 
exactly true, but that sort of flows into how do you do that in um, sort of real life, and that's where you get into a question of, of something that's much, much more difficult, um, not only because unifying a message across you know, a wide and sort of disparate number of stakeholders across the U.S. government is going to be incredibly challenging, but also making sure that what we're communicating in the online space is reflected in our offline actions, um, whether that's you know, foreign policy, our aid, what soldiers are doing on the ground. Um, you know, as the sort of phrase goes, it's, it takes 10 years to build trust and a second to break trust. Um, so if our use of memes and, you know, sort of narrative campaigns and messaging more broadly is not synced up with our actions, we lose credibility as a messenger, and that, that's an incredibly tough thing to regain. I think, too, one of the things we really were aware of when we sort of looked at this is that, you know, there's a bunch of statistics on how the percentage of online communications that are visual is sort of growing over the years. And one of the things we want sort of uh, or that caught our attention is that by not engaging this way, by sort of ceding the mimetic space to group like groups like ISIS or to just sort of a groups like even Anonymous, actually. Anonymous launched an anti-ISIS campaign at one point. The United States is sort of not participating in, in the sort of very discussion space that's growing, right? So if we don't engage visually, we're ceding that space to other people. Um, so sort of figuring out how to do that uh, smartly and strategically, um, both at, say, the level of, uh, you know, sort of it, in, within the military, within individual embassies, within the sort of State Department um, writ large, it feels really important. Interesting. So I want to maybe um, sort of end the show um, with two things. One, um, what is your favorite meme? Because I think um, I think everybody within a, a certain generation, I, I, I don't know if you call them millennials or whatever, that everybody has a favorite meme. And then, um, you know, more seriously, like what is, you know, before we end the show, you know, give us something to sort of think about and to sort of to chew on while, you know, we listen to, you know, after, you know, we listen to the show. A good question. Well, I can safely say my favorite meme uh, is, is the all the things meme. It's like a little cartoon person. Oh, that's a good choice, Kate. <laughs> Maybe that just appeals to my sort of extra personality. But I and I, I'll actually say that um, I think my favorite meme actually might be Success Kid. There, there is just something so gleefully self-satisfied about that kid um and it's 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 a on the happier end of the spectrum too which perhaps sort of speaks to my my smugness in some ways i suppose like nailed it kind of a, a thing i i like success kid um the second question is a lot trickier something to sort of chew on as as you walk away yeah i think if i if i had to say specific to sort of the knapsack community is Rather than take this paper as a carte blanche um, sort of approval of the use of memes, maybe I would encourage people to think about it in a little more nuanced fashion and think about um, what might make a memetic campaign effective. How would we measure that? And the bigger question would be, who are the right agencies in the U.S. government, um, and certainly for our allies and partners in their own government, who's, who's the right person to be doing this? Um, we certainly are not trying to suggest 
you know, go forth and everyone go crazy with cat memes, that's probably not exactly the best option. So really just as I suppose sort of boring as it is to think critically about what does this paper mean and contribute to the bigger conversation about about our government's sort of ability to influence and who should be doing that. Yeah, I think I would I would sort of build on that a little bit. I would I would I think ask two questions. The first question I'd ask would be sort of what is the cost of not learning to do this? Um, so you know it's it's Grumpy Cat and Success Kid and all the things today, but the online visual sort of online visual space is going to continue to evolve. And it's really hard to imagine that it's going to evolve in the form of more long-form journalism. Like, I don't think what we're going to see are more, you know, 20,000-word articles. I, I think it's pretty clear that the Internet is going to be a visual space. Uh, with infographics uh, sort of coming to dominate even within sort of uh, long-form journalism. So, so uh, instead of looking at memes and thinking, oh, that's a fad, we'll just sort of wait it out, um, we're, we're talking about memes, but we're talking about sort of a broad category of communication. We're not, we're, our report isn't just about sort of a grumpy cat. Um, so I think the first question I would sort of poke at or sort of uh, leave people with is what, sort, what is the cost of not figuring this out? Um, and then the second, something, something Kate mentioned, which is that, um, that you can ask yourself the question sort of broadly, who should be doing this? But the one way to flip that around, um, if you're in sort of the national security conversation, is to ask, how can I be doing this? Um, so it, it's, a, it's not a complicated sort of thing to do. And our, our paper was really an effort to take a first step at operationalization, right? So it wasn't meant to be sort of the answer to how to operationalize, but sort of an effort to organize and to give some sort of a, a first initial draft that how memes can be used. And sort of we've identified three ways. Um, but those could be those could have utility for someone sort of in a in a tactical position in a in another country or in an embassy in another country or here in the in DC in the state in the State Department somewhere or um, um, and they just have a we have we think they have a lot more utility than um, than they might appear to at first glance. Interesting. Well, um, with that, um, thank you so much for being guests on the show. Um, that the paper is exploring the utility of memes for U.S. government influence campaigns, and we will definitely have a link up. Um, so, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, Sina, thank you so much for having us. Oh, of course.